We've come now to the final chapter of Micah, Micah chapter 7. In the first six verses of the chapter, Micah the prophet describes the woeful condition of men and how few of the godly there actually are in verses 1 to 6. No trust in man, essentially, 1 to 6. But in verses 7 to 20, he is speaking of trust in God. Verses 7 to 20, trust in God, especially for the remnant who will enjoy the truth and the love of God and the forgiveness of sins. That's in verses 7 to 20. But it's not an easy road, not an easy road at all for the righteous or the remnant because uh, verses 7 to 13, he describes the afflictions that they undergo in the midst of being conformed to the image of Christ in verses 7 to 13. But finally, in verses 14 to 20, he does indeed describe their great victory, their great victory in Christ, their great victory because they are forgiven of sins. Those are the main components of this chapter. Let's read verses 1 to 6. The description of man and the men even of his generation, which is true of all generations. Verses 1 to 6. Woe is me, for I am like fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bride, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For a son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. The prophet here, he speaks on behalf of the righteous and he pronounces a woe against himself. Woe is me, why? Why is there a woe on the righteous? Because he is like fruit pickers. And when fruit pickers go out into the field, they go hopeful. They go hopeful looking for good fruit to pick so that they might harvest the good fruit. But he says there is not a cluster of grapes to eat. The fruit he finds in the field is no good whatsoever. He can't benefit. Well, why did he describe the fruit of the field, which he is trying to gather and collect, investigate, harvest? Why did he describe his pursuit that way and a woe upon himself because he didn't find what he wanted? Because of verse 2, verses 2 to 6. He's actually describing people. He's describing people like rotten fruit. People are just like fruit that is uh, unworthy of partaking. Verse 2, the godly person has perished 
from the land, and there is no upright person among men. He's saying there's hardly anybody around who's godly. There's hardly anybody around who is upright. I can't find them. They're hard to see. Of course, he's a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet and Hezekiah the king. So we have at least three individuals right there. But this is a figure of speech. It's just an expression saying there's very few righteous men in the whole country. Very few of them. And this should not be a surprise. Not a surprise that there are few people who are godly. He describes the ungodly, verses 2 to 4. He says, All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. These people are bloodthirsty. They have bloody hands because they seek violence in order to obtain whatever they want to obtain. So they murder people. They massacre people. They commit genocide. Each of them hunts the other with a net. They set up traps for their own countrymen, for their own neighbors. They're looking to destroy and then plunder whatever their neighbors leave behind after their death. Verse 3, concerning evil, both hands do it well. They're very skilled. You know, some people are right-handed, some people are left-handed, and others are ambidextrous, correct? Well, they are that way in evil. Both hands are skill, skillful in doing evil, he says. The men of authority, the prince, the judge, the great man, these are those who are wealthy and powerful. These men want bribes or offer bribes or ask for bribes for the common man to get his way, to get justice or to get whatever. They don't work on the basis of true justice, objectivity, collection of evidence, the Bible, witnesses. They don't act that way, but they are giving and seeking bribes to get what they want. They know that people are desperate, so they exploit the desperation of the commoner to get what they want. And usually it's more money, more influence, pleasures, all kinds of pleasures, including sex. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The best of the wicked are like these weeds, thorns and briars. They're no good. They are like nettles. They're like poison ivy. They're no good whatsoever. The best of them are worthless. What can you do with briars and thorns? You can't do anything. And that's the best, the most upright of them, describing how evil they are, how base and corrupt they have become. He says, the day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. When they post a watchman to prepare themselves for the incoming invasion, for the enemy on the horizon, he says, it's not going to help you. Your watchman's not going to help you. The punishment will come. The confusion will occur. There will be chaos. There will be misery. There will be devastation. 
when the foreigners come to invade the land. There's no escape. This is what you deserve. Speaking of people like this, we said that Micah is not alone or Micah's experience is not an uncommon experience. It's actually the common experience. We know from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, all over the Bible, many examples, generation after generation, the righteous, they murmur and complain to God that nobody else is around. Abraham petitioned God before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, Genesis 18 and 19. And there wasn't found even 10 righteous men. In the next chapter, only Lot looks to be righteous. In chapter 19, only Lot. So one out of a multitude in those cities, only one. What happened in the days of Noah? Only eight. How about in the days of Elijah? Only 7,000 out of millions of people. Extreme conservative, 7,000 out of 7 million. But more likely, it was 70 million or more. Only 7,000 righteous in Elijah's day. 1 Kings 19 describes that. And on and on we go. Micah explains the same. It's even that way in the New Testament. In the New Testament... The pattern is not megachurches. The pattern is small churches who are persecuted and often have to meet in secret because their persecutors are ready to pounce on them. That's the pattern. The pattern is not the favor of the people in society. The pattern is actually the opposite, the disfavor, the hatred of the people in society. Because everyone is chasing after pleasure. Everyone is chasing after money. Everybody's chase, chasing after fame. They're all doing that. And very few people understand the evilness of that, the fleeting nature of it, that is only temporary. It has no lasting value, no eternal value. Few people understand that and live accordingly. Then he turns attention to proximity. Remember, verses 1 to 6, the condition of men in the land. Verses 1 to 4, that's easy to describe, to describe one's countrymen that way. But it's not just the countrymen, those who are on the outside, those who are in territories and and properties miles and miles away, hundreds of miles away. It's even, in verses 5 to 6, those who are near you. Even those in your own house, under your own roof. He says, do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. He's talking about the wife there. Guard your lips. That is the closest neighbor, and husbands should be able to trust their wives. But here he's saying, you better watch out. If they don't have faith, if they don't believe in the gospel, you can't trust them. Her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. That's how dangerous it is 
the one who is in the same bed is untrustworthy. Further, verse 6, son against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are mere examples. He's not being exhaustive with these examples. That's why he summarizes in verse 6, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Son cannot um, trust father, father cannot trust son. Grandson cannot trust grandmother, grandmother cannot trust granddaughter. On and on, it doesn't matter. Proximity does not ensure peace. Not at all. In fact, often that's where the most vicious attacks occur. That should not be a surprise either. When did the first murder occur? It occurred in Genesis 4, Cain against his own brother in the same family, in the nuclear family, Cain murdered Abel. How about in Abraham's household? Was there peace always? No. Ishmael persecuted Isaac and had to eventually be driven out of the household, Genesis 21. Ishmael against his own brother, half-brother, but still brother, and had to be driven out of the household because of the danger he presented. And this is also in the church. It happens like this in the church. Whether it's the family, the natural, biological family, or the spiritual family, there's always these kinds of conflicts and always these kinds of wicked men who rise up and threaten the rest of the family of God, the true family of God. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts chapter 20, 29 to 30. Acts 20, 29 to 30. Now his attention is on the righteous and what the righteous, first, what they endure, and secondly, the blessings they experience. In 1 to 6, he's essentially saying, you can't trust near or distant man. There's a curse on you if you do, because they're going to turn against you. There's very few righteous men. But in 7 and following, he's calling on us to trust the Lord. Trust in him, verse 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. God will hear me. I'm not going to trust man. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to hope in him, watch expectantly, wait for. To wait for is the same as hope for. Put my faith, my confidence in the Lord. And why? Because he's the Lord and the God of my salvation. And he says, my God. He belongs to God. God belongs to him. And since he is one of the children of God, he has confidence God will hear me. Those who have faith in God know he will hear them. Not instantly. Not always the way we want but he will hear us and eventually 
bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18 Therefore, if our hope is in God, a warning to our enemies. Verse 8 Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. A warning to enemies not to rejoice, not to gloat, not to mock the righteous because he sees the righteous temporarily depressed, temporarily discouraged, temporarily without any strength, completely weak. When the wicked see the righteous that way, they better watch out. They better stop rejoicing because though I fall, I will rise. Our fall or our stumbling is temporary, but our standing, our reign, our kingdom is eternal. And that's what really counts. Not the current predicament but the future eternal state. That's what really counts. The enemies don't understand that. The enemies think our current darkness is inescapable, and it's proof that God doesn't care. We'll come to that in a moment. But God does care, and He is with us. He is mindful of us. Verse 9, 9 to 13. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. In verse 9, he speaks of his own sins and bearing the indignation of God because of his own sins. But this indignation of God because of the prophet's own sins is not an eternal indignation. It won't last forever. It is a temporary indignation in order to purify the righteous. Because the righteous have sins that need to be removed from them. Just like impure metals need to be put in the furnace so that the impurities, the dross, the dross is smelted away and the metal comes forth pure. That's the kind of indignation and sin he's talking about. This is progressive sanctification through affliction. Progressive sanctification through affliction. That's how God removes sin in our life. Through hardships. Because he causes us 
to focus on him, to trust him, put faith in him. Micah is essentially saying he knows what's going on and it's not discouraging him. It's not discouraging him at all because he does say until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. I know this is temporary and I know eventually God is going to vindicate me. He's going to justify me. He's going to pronounce a sentence of execution against my adversaries. But I will be brought to the light. I will see his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ, the light of Christ will clothe us on the day when God makes a distinction. On the day of judgment. That's that distinction will be made. Verse 10, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me. This this exaltation of the righteous on God's day of judgment. The enemy will see that. Not only will we see God punish the enemy, the wicked, but we'll also see or the wicked will also see God bless us. God vindicate us. Both of us will see across the aisle and see what God does to each party, to each group, the righteous and the wicked. And what did the wicked do? What did the enemies of God do? What did the enemies of God's people do? They mocked. They mocked us. They said, where is the Lord your God? Remember when we were in darkness, in trouble, when we fell in verse 8, and they were rejoicing over us, they were saying in their rejoicing, where is the Lord your God? You said you trust in God, but God's not helping you now because I'm laughing at you. God's not with you. God doesn't care for you. He doesn't love you. He won't deliver you from your trials. I am stronger than you. Therefore, your God does not exist. Your God is no good. Your God doesn't care for you. My God is greater than your God, or no God is greater than your God because your God doesn't help you. They ridicule us. But he says, my eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. However, it's going to be reversed, and we will see their doom. We will see when they are trampled underfoot like mire of the streets. We're going to see their destruction. We're not only going to see their destruction, we will participate in their destruction. Then in 11 to 13, we have a bit of a contrast going on. So let's understand it carefully. He has said what the enemy sees and what they say and what's going to happen to them in verse 10. But at the time that we are vindicated, he's speaking of what blessings we have in verses 11 to 12. What blessings we have between now and then. And what are those blessings? A day for building your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. Your walls and your boundaries extended, built up and extended. 
He's describing our blessings. But why do the city walls need to be built up? And why do the boundaries of our city need to be extended? Why are we doing this? Because of verse 12. There will be many people coming from Assyria and Egypt, from the Euphrates, from sea to sea, mountain to mountain. He's describing conversion from the nations of the world. And because of the conversion of the nations of the world, we're going to have a lot of people dwelling with us, rejoicing with us, who are in the, uh, in the same company, and we're going to be the ones blessed by the Lord, looking at our enemies as they are punished. They will see our blessing we will see their cursing. And why are they going to be cursed? He returns to describing their enemies, or our enemies in verse 13. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants. The earth desolate because of her inhabitants. So ruin, destruction, misery for the earth because of the wicked inhabitants of the earth. And how do we know he's talking about their wickedness? He says, on account of the fruit of their deeds. He's describing the evil fruit or the rotten fruit of their evil deeds. He means that. He means the rotten fruit, the bad fruit, unconsumable fruit of their evil deeds. He's using fruit as a metaphor of their wickedness. Rotten fruit, rotten behavior. That's what he's describing. That's why they will all be devastated. That's why they will all be desolate, because they practice wickedness. Yet, 14 to 20, he describes the righteous. 14. 14 is a prayer. Actually, These verses are a prayer, 14 and following. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. A call for God to shepherd his people and to provide for them abundantly, protect them with great security and strength and put them in a fruitful field. And Bashan and Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan River was a very fertile and lush territory. It was good for herds and flocks. We are described like that. And the prayer is for God to feed us like he feeds the herds and the flocks on the eastern side of the Jordan. Feed your people. This reminds us of John 21, where our Lord instructed the disciples, especially Peter, to feed the sheep. God feeds the sheep through the shepherds of the sheep, the under-shepherds under Christ. As in the days of old, when they first settled in the land of Canaan, they had peace and prosperity in the time of Joshua, because Joshua was able to subdue the enemies, 
and there was a time of peace and prosperity until Joshua died. Then we come to the period of the judges, and it goes up and downhill from then onward until it's completely down, and they are exiled, destroyed and exiled. Verse 15, As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. At that period, under Moses and Joshua, he performed many miracles as a token of his great love for them. And here, too, he's calling on God to continue to show miracles in the life of the believer, which would would be a token, a symbol of his great eternal love for us. 16, a description of what's going to happen. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. In contrast to the blessing on the righteous, there's a curse on the nations and they're going to be ashamed. Verse 16 describes their shame. They're going to see this blessing and shrink away in shame because their might was not right. Their strength did not support them on the day of judgment because God Almighty is mightier than they. And all the power they had on the earth won't help them on that day. They're going to put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They can't do anything to help themselves. They can't get out of their dilemma, their destruction, the day of destruction. Verse 17, they will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses, To the Lord our God, they will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. They're going to bow down low, so low their faces are going to touch the ground. And he describes it like licking the dust and like reptiles that cling to the floor of the earth, to the dust of the earth. That's how low and humiliated they're going to become They're going to be brought before the Lord and be in dread, be afraid of Him. Like Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Especially 9 to 11. 18 to 20. In contrast... Remember, the Bible is always, whether it's in a single sentence, a verse, a paragraph, a chapter, or between chapters, the Bible always compares and contrasts righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, the believer with the unbeliever. The unbelievers experience the shame of 16 and 17, but the believers are elevated in 18 to 20. What does their elevation Contain. Verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
and 20. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. There's no God like ours. That's why he says this. Who is a God like you? No God like ours because, for one, he's the only true and living God. But number two, he's the only God who pardons iniquity. Idols don't pardon because they don't exist. No one else pardons. There's only one true God. That's the God of the Bible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The only true God. From Genesis to Revelation, indeed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And no one like him who pardons iniquity and passes over, which is another description of pardoning, the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not pardon every human being. In verse 18, his abundant pardon is for the remnant of his possession. The remnant. Who's the remnant? We've seen this term, the remnant, a few times here in Micah. Micah chapter 2. Micah 2.12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Further, chapter 5. Actually, chapter 4. Chapter 4, 6, and 7. Chapter 4, 6, and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And 5, 7 to 9. 5, 7 to 9. Actually, 5, 3, and then 7 to 9. 5, 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And four, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And then verses seven to nine, five, seven. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. It's the remnant who is forgiven. The remnant do not experience the wrath of God forever. Instead, his unchanging love. Not his wrath and justice, but his unchanging love. He'll have compassion on us, 19. All our iniquities he'll tread underfoot. He'll stamp it out. Yes, 
All our iniquities are cast into the depths of the sea. No more to rise again, but will fall like a heavy stone to the bottom of the ocean. That's the way our sins are forgotten and disappear, removed far away from us. This is a description of justification by faith in Christ. When we are justified, like Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. No condemnation. Then verse 20. This is a prayer, a continuation of his prayer. You, God, will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. We note here, that he has said, you will give truth to Jacob, unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore, past tense, to our forefathers from the days of old. The forefathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why does he say here, he will give truth and love to Jacob and Abraham in verse 20? Did he do so? And will he do so? It does say he did do so, but it also says he will do so. Why does the prophet speak this way? The prophet speaks this way because in the first part of verse 20, the first half, he's calling the people of God, the redeemed people of God, he's calling them Jacob and Abraham. And he's saying that you... Jews and Gentiles who believe, remember, he included Gentiles in verse 20. 11, uh, sorry, not 20, 12. Chapter 7, 11, and 12. 7, 11, and 12. He's describing how Gentiles will be included in this blessing. So Jews and Gentiles are described here. They're given this name, Jacob. And Abraham, two names, Jacob and Abraham. And just as God chose Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with eternal salvation by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, he'll also do so to all Jews who believe like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the death and resurrection of Christ. In addition, he'll do it for all Gentiles who believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He'll give it to all Gentiles also, whom he has chosen. And all together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, all of their physical descendants in the nation of Israel who believe like them, and all of the spiritual descendants among the Gentiles who believe like them, all of them are included under this nomenclature of Abraham and Jacob here. That's who is being called by these terms of endearment, Abraham and Jacob. That's what God promised to Abraham, and that's what promise continues throughout the Old Testament and continues into the New Testament. Especially one good place to study this doctrine two good places to study this doctrine, the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. 
both Galatians and Romans. Galatians chapters, well, all the chapters, one to six, but especially chapters three to six in Galatians and Romans chapters one to five. Romans chapters one to five and then nine to 11 for this doctrine. Romans 1 to 5 and 9 to 11. Okay, that is a brief exposition of the chapter. We have um, a few places where we could highlight, and we'll look at a few cross-references for these. One cross-reference for verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6 is Matthew 10. Matthew 10. The relevant section of Matthew 10 is 16 to 42. 16 to 42, because he's describing his commission to us, his disciples, and the persecutions that we will experience. That's in 1016 to 42 of Matthew. We will indeed experience persecution. But do not worry. Do not worry because we are more valuable than the birds and God will take care of us. Also, we should have the fear of God in the face of persecution because our enemies, though they might put our bodies to death, God will put soul and body in hell. He should be feared in verse 28. Well, then we reach verses 34 to 39, the main part compared to Micah 7. 10.34 Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is the Lord Jesus talking. He didn't come to bring peace on the earth. What's he talking about? I thought he's the prince of peace. I thought he is the mediator between God and men. I thought the angels said, peace on earth, in Luke 2, 14. What about all that peace? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. What about peace like that? All of that is true. But in this sense, this specific sense, Christ did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. And this is what he means. Verse 35. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. What's he quoting? Our verse in Micah 7, Micah 7, 6. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. If we don't love Christ above all people, especially our own family and our own household, we are not worthy of Christ. We lose our life if we don't follow him by taking up our cross. That means if our own father, mother, 
brother, sister, son, daughter, rises up against us to the extent of putting us to death, we should go and follow Christ, even if they threaten and even if they accomplish violence against us, he said. Because he said, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's Christ teaching us these truths that we ought not to reject just because the flesh thinks they are harsh and bitter. Next, the concept in verses 7 to 13 that God uses affliction because of our sins to purify us, to cleanse us, to chasten us, to discipline us is found in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1 to 17. Hebrews 12, 1 to 17. In verses 1 to 3, he says that Christ himself was disciplined and underwent affliction. And he endured the cross in verses 1 to 3. But in verses 4, 4 to 13, He's exhorting us to do the same. We who have sin, we who needed redemption because of our sins. He's telling us that we have to resist, we have to do even to the point of shedding blood. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So what's the big deal? Why do we complain when we have afflictions and when people persecute us. We haven't shed our blood. Christ shed His blood and He had no sin. So why shouldn't we shed our blood because of our sins? Five, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate children and not sons if God doesn't discipline you. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That's the kind of strength we need, spiritual strength to press on instead of letting limbs fall away, fall off our body. And then when we see 
him describing that the nations are going to be subjected to us. They're going to be subjected to God and us. We find in Revelation 3, Revelation 3, the fact that they will be subjugated to us, they will submit to us, but also when we see their demise, we will rejoice over them. Now they rejoice over us, but we eventually will rejoice over them. Revelation 3.9, on them bowing down to us. Revelation 3.9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. He's going to make our enemies know that the love of God has actually been directed toward us, not them. And they have as their reward, their retribution, the wrath of God. Which wrath of God, Revelation 18 describes? Revelation 18 describes the wrath of God on the wicked. And when the wicked fall, Babylon the great, when the wicked fall, what's our response? What is our response factually, and what is our response supposed to be? Verse 20 describes it. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Isn't this a command? Rejoice over her? It's a command, so it's an obligation. This is what we're supposed to do, not what merely we actually do. It is true we're going to do this, but which chapter 19 describes it, 19, 1 to 10 describes that we actually will do it. But here, that we ought to do it, we're supposed to do it. Rejoice heaven, saints, apostles, prophets. Heaven might be a reference to angels. Saints, all the righteous, all the saved. Apostles and prophets. Those who led the people of God. Everyone rejoices because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. It will turn out to be in the reverse. And lastly, this doctrine that God has a special possession, the apple of his eye, the sheep of his pasture, his honorable name, the honorable name that he endows on his people. This is noted in Galatians. Galatians, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 26 to 29, just in case you're writing. And Galatians 6, 16. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. And Galatians 6, 16. Jews and Gentiles, spiritually, who have the faith of Abraham, faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, 
the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, the promise of the Spirit through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ's death, right there in verse 13. Abraham believed it. Moses preached it because he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Abraham believed it. Moses believed it. And Moses wrote of it. Abraham preached it and taught his household that the Gentiles who believe like him would have his same blessing. Galatians 3.26 For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Abraham's offspring Heirs according to promise. In Christ, we are heirs according to to promise, no matter our background. And then 6.16 of Galatians. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. That is, upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God, he says, namely the Israel of God, they are the ones who walk by this rule of the apostle. They are the ones who receive the peace and mercy of God, called the Israel of God. Not the Israel of the flesh, not the Israel of natural generation, but the Israel of spiritual generation, the Israel of God. Who are they? Jews and Gentiles, who have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the other saints of the Old Testament, because they anticipated, and now we believe in its accomplishment. They anticipated, we experience the accomplishment of the death and resurrection of Christ for our forgiveness of sins and eternal life. These are the ones who are called Jacob, Israel, Abraham. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.